We're going to read from Luke chapter 1, uh, from verse 57 to verse 80. And we read these words. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, No, he is to be called John. They said to her, There is no one among your relatives who has that name. Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, His name is John. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue set free, and he began to speak, praising God. All the neighbors were filled with awe, and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, What then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. His father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said long as he said through his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our, from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days." And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly to Israel. Um, well, I think it is about that time where uh, we need to check in with people as to how their preparations are going this year for Christmas. Uh, so come on then, let's hear how things are going, at least here on site. Let's, let's start with them. Let's call the, uh, the organized ones. Who here has um, done their Christmas shopping in its entirety? Very, very good. Very good. Okay. And all preparations made? Actually, my hand was up there for a second. All preparations made? Yeah, there's one or two, one or two. My hand's not quite up for that one, but um, we'll see how we get on. Yeah, you know, that every year we can be confident, can't we? Yeah, that, that those are the people who are going to get everything sorted out. And here they are the Sunday before saying a hearty yes. Okay, let's go with the in-between then. Let's go with the in-between. Um, we'll call these the... It'll be all right, people. We'll get, we'll get through. We'll get through. Who here has started but not finished their Christmas shopping? Yeah, okay, few hands up, few hands up, yeah, yeah. Still got nearly a week, five more shopping days, you know, still time for all of that. And let's go with, well, let's call them the confident ones. Who here hasn't started their Christmas shopping? Oh, there's a couple of hands, a few hands. Who here only has to buy one gift, though? Okay, yeah, one hand goes up. I thought that might be the case. That might be the reason. Confidence, you see. Confidence oozing out, obviously, this morning. But anyway, it's a season of preparation, isn't it? 
It is a season of preparation, and our Advent candles have reminded us of that. And really, when we're looking at these passages, these songs of Christmas, they are the same sort of idea, really, that they're songs of preparation that are preparing for these miracle babies to arrive, first John the Baptist, and then Jesus the Messiah. We've had uh, Mary's song of joy, a song of worship for all that God has done for her, all that he's going to do through her. Uh, He's mighty, his power is at work, hardly anywhere more than being born as a baby um, to a virgin girl to be our saviour. Now we're going to catch up with Zachariah himself. Uh, we, we saw him a little bit in the first in the series, but we're going to catch up with him now. If you remember, elderly man uh, with his wife who was unable to conceive, told by an angel that in their old age, they too would bear a son. And Zachariah goes, surely not. How on earth is that possible now? And Gabriel replies, well, it will happen. And you'll have a sign. And the sign will be, you're going to be silent up until the baby's arrival, unable to speak for the duration of the pregnancy because you failed to take God at his word and believe. But now we jump forwards to that time of arrival, the time of the birth in Luke chapter 1, which at this point, of course, is still all about preparations, preparing the way. Mary is still doing her Christmas shopping, okay? She's still waiting. She's picking out the baby wear, getting the nappies all organized. Did they have nappies? I'm not quite sure. Um, But she knows she's going to have a baby boy, and she's preparing for all of that. She's about five to six months behind Elizabeth, her relative, And it's here in verse 57 we read, When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. They shared in her joy. And we're going to look at what happens this morning. What happens with Zechariah 2 in his song under just four, four headings this morning. And each of these four tell us something about God himself. Something that Zechariah would say, or that happens through the events surrounding him, that tells us something about the amazing God that we serve. And the great thing about all of this is, is that these truths don't change. They're the same now as they were 2,000 years ago when, when, when these words were spoken out. These words don't change. We learn an awful lot about the God we worship through what happens. And so the first is this. Uh, he is a God of great mercy. That's a good truth to reflect on, particularly at Christmas time. But at all times as well, our God is a great a God of great mercy. And aren't we just glad that he is? Aren't we glad that he is? Now, now what is mercy, I hear you ask? What, what is mercy, in fact? What does that mean? Um, you know, Ebenezer Scrooge in the Christmas Carol, you may be watching it again this year on TV, uh, gets visited by ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future, doesn't he? Uh, when he's visited by the future, uh, the ghost of, of Christmas is to come. He pleads for mercy before the ghost of Christmas to come. What does mercy mean, though? What was he asking for? Well, in essence, mercy is equivalent to loving kindness, goodness towards the afflicted, a spirit of graciousness, of giving, of upholding, of forgiving and providing for, particularly to anybody who is in need. It is to have mercy. And all of those things, I mean, think about them for a second. All of them, pretty good to reflect on at this time of year, aren't they? They all feed into the Christmas story. Uh, We sing that old carol that we sang at the the cafe last week, uh, while shepherds watch their flocks by night. We sang, goodwill henceforth, 
from heaven to men begin and never cease. It's like a prayer, isn't it, in the carol? That goodwill would be shown by God to us and never cease. It's a core part of the Christmas message and it means so much to us. And of course, it's a core part of us living as Christians as well. So Elizabeth's here unable to have children all of her life. She has a miracle baby from the Lord with her husband. And all the neighbors hear that the Lord has shown her great mercy in her advanced years. Young or old, Mary's age or Elizabeth's, we can all experience the same mercy, grace, and favor of our Lord. That's a Christmas promise. It's a promise that should bring us great joy as well, just as it did to the people back then. In fact, we get told, don't we, that the neighbors in the story, the neighbors who are, who are right there around her, living, living nearby, that they, they, they join with her, don't they? And they know nothing of her pregnancy. They don't actually know anything about it. Uh, she's been in seclusion up till the point of Mary seeing her at about five months or so. But in fact, Mary is seemingly the only one who sees Elizabeth until she gives birth. It's only when the child is born that the neighbors even hear that anything's been going on. They hear of what God has done for her. And they get to join in with her joy. And all of the neighbors gather around her and share in her joy. It sounds a bit like a baby shower. You know, the baby shower goes on. They, they, they share together in joy together. But of course, it's not just a joy. It's not just a joy. It's joy that is in response to something that God has done for her. Which, when you think about it, is the truest form of joy. The truest form. Uh, we were talking a little bit about joy, in fact, at, uh, at our, the evening Zoom study. Um, uh, how difficult it is to define really what joy is. Because it's not really happiness in that sense. Although happiness is a part of joy. You experience happiness in joy. You could call it that. Elizabeth would have been extraordinarily happy to bear a child when she'd been unable to before. It's a part of joy, but it's not the full picture. Um, it's not leaping up and down in excitement at joy. You know, kids on Christmas morning get very, very excited, don't they? There's a lot of joy around. Uh, and, and it's happiness and excitement. Um, but again, that's only a part of the picture of joy. When Mary goes to see Elizabeth, we get told by Elizabeth that as soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. There's this excitement. There's an anticipation about what's going to be taking place. And there is that, that those very things are present in joy. It is a jumping up and down and saying, isn't this amazing? Isn't this incredible? Because it should change something in our hearts. We have moments of pure joy, but of course, those kind of moments are also fleeting. The baby didn't go on leaping. The kind of joy is more, joy is more like happiness, momentary. But let's not rule out the impact that that kind of joy can have on our lives too. You know, the, the kind of joy that when you get so captivated by what Jesus has done. The, the, the kind of joy when full assurance comes in and you just know what he's done for you and it does something in here, changes something deeper within. You know, something must be known and felt when it comes to our relationship with him. It's not just a head thing, it's a heart thing as well. Because it's, it's when we feel, isn't it? It's when we feel something, when it impacts us deeper within, that when our hearts are warm towards God, when we're convicted of something, when we feel joy bubbling up inside, it does change things. It changes in a moment, how we think. 
how we perceive our worlds, how we even see God, and then how we must live in light of what he has done for us. If we don't feel anything, any kind of joy in the moment, we are missing something in our relationship with him. You know, it'd be like being in a romantic relationship where you never feel anything for the other person. That would be odd. Now, Jesus is not a romance in that sense, but there's reasons why intimate language is used of his relationship with his people. As a husband to the church, there's a a longing for him towards us. And it's shown in this mercy. That same longing is to be felt, known and, known and responded by us back to him. It's a part of joy. Which gets us to the final part of joy, which is really that in those moments where we get momentary joy, where we see something knew about him, when we realize what he's done for us at a greater depth, those moments where we get that kind of conviction, those kinds of moments can also lead to lasting joy at the same time. In fact, another word that you could use that I think is quite apt would be contentment. Contentment. Contentment that lasts in life. And, and, and I don't mean by contentment that we've got everything figured out. That's not the kind of contentment I mean. Uh, God is going to continue to grow every single one of us this side of eternity. It's not contentment to say, I'm okay where I am. This will do just fine. You know, my relationship with God, that's just fine. I'll, I'll pause here, thank you very much, and wait for eternity. That, that's not the kind of contentment we're talking about here. The kind of contentment we're talking about uh, is, is saying in our heart of hearts, I am secure. And we are secure. That's the kind of contentment that comes through faith, or should come through faith. It's the kind of contentment that isn't the swinging backwards and forwards. You know, the, 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 even questions like, am I saved? I'm not sure I'm saved. What if I'm not saved? That kind of thing. But, but trusting him that in the depth of our being, if we have repented of sin, trusted him for his salvation, trusted him with our lives, that we are secure forever with him because that that changes things in the here and now. It's almost like a, a future hope that impacts where we are right in the present that says, and you can continue on. You can grow. We'll become more like Jesus because we've learned to be content with what he has done for us. And think for a second what that does to us, what it does to our lives. It means no more need to chase after the things of this world as if they are needed to complete us. That's what it means. Be that possessions, be that money or power, be that worry about reputation or before other people. Be that being the kind of person who always demands a lot of others, being someone who who doesn't forgive others. All of those things fall away when we realize and can be content with what Jesus has done for us. Because when we see the mercy he has given to us, suddenly it changes the way we see our world and see our lives and see the lives of other people. The joy that results should truly change us. And that's number one. He's a God of great mercy. Uh, Number two is this. He is a God who greatly astonishes. I like this one. He's a God who greatly astonishes. Uh, Think for a second. When was the last time you were truly astonished by something. And I mean in a good way. 
When was the last time that you were truly astonished by something in a good way? Because all sorts of things happen in our world and we, we're astonished by them in a negative way. Terrible things happen all the time. But when was the last time you were truly astonished, amazed in a positive and uplifting way that did something to you in your life? Think on that for a second. Because our God is a God who should, in the way that we see him, truly astonish us. So what is it in the story? Well, the astonishment in the story is that Elizabeth and Zechariah say the name of the baby is to be John, and there's a reason for that, okay? Gabriel told Zechariah that was to be his name. That was the name that God himself wanted for this baby, now, the name, John, um, means God is a gracious giver. Did we know that at the back there? <laughs> John means God is a gracious giver. To Elizabeth and Zechariah, that much certainly was true. But the discussion in Luke 1 was more about why the couple didn't name him after, after Zechariah himself or a relative, which would have been the normal practice in Jewish society. They say to them, there is no one among your relatives who has that name. The people contend with Elizabeth, thinking it to be very strange that she would want to call the baby John when there is no relative who is called John, because that was the done thing. But she says, no, he's going to be called John. And so what do they do? Well, they go to Zechariah. And they say, well, Zechariah, what do you want to call the child? What do you want to name him? It feels a bit like a, you know, how children, um, they go to one parent and they ask for something, and they don't get the answer they, respond, that they, they want. And so they go to the other parent and see if they can get the right answer from them. You know what I mean? It's a bit like that, really. It feels a bit like that. And Zechariah, he writes it because he still can't speak. Um, some doubt as well that he is able to hear, that that was part of the process as well, because the people have to sign to him. They have to sign to him in order that he can tell what's going on. So uh, God seemingly has muted and deafened Zechariah, it seems, is the sign of waiting for the child. But what does Zechariah write in his circumstance? He writes, no, his name is to be John. And everyone was greatly astonished. Now you can imagine, can't you, all of this astonishment. Firstly, over the name. But secondly, over what happens next. Because as he says the words, no, his name, or sorry, writes the words, no, his name's going to be John. His tongue is loosened. His mouth opens. And following nine months of silence, and probably nine months of not being able to hear either, the first thing he does is open his mouth and give praise to the God that he has come to know in an even deeper way than he had before. That's the song which we'll get to in just a moment. But how do the people react when all this takes place? They see the name, they, they, sorry, they hear the name, they, they see the miracle. Well, it says, all of the neighbors, everyone who is there present, sees all of this take place, and they were filled with awe, the passage says. They were filled with awe, and the whole surrounding area heard about it and began to talk about the miracle that had taken place. They were astonished by what Zechariah had written, which is what God had told him to say. 
and then awed by God at what God then did in response to his obedience. Mouth loosed, speech returned, miracle upon miracle takes place. And what does that tell us? Well, it tells us <laughs> that our God is a God who does the miraculous, first of all. He's a miracle-making God. And, and not just miracles for the sake of it. Miracles so that people would look on, that would respond back to him in awe because of everything that he has done for us. So that people may turn their hearts back to him. Now pause for a second. Think for a moment how astonishing God really is. Do you ever do this? Do you ever just stop? And think about how astonishing God really is. Because this is the thing about the Christmas story. The Christmas story is one of those stories that we revisit every single year. And it's great. It's wonderful. Love the Christmas story. But the other thing about the Christmas story is, because we look at it every single year, it gets very familiar to us, doesn't it? Or at least can do. And there's that saying, isn't there? You know, uh, that familiarity breeds contempt. And I'm not saying that we're, we're contemptuous about the Christmas story, far from it. But when we're familiar with something, it does cause us to sometimes skip over it, doesn't it? As if we know it all, because we've heard it before. You know, e even people out in our world, of course, you know, e even from the youngest, if they've done a nativity play at school before, they know some of the aspects of what the story is and what, what happened in those days. We've got this sort of, still have a common awareness of the Christmas story. But of course, the problem with that is, is that often we don't take the time to just sit and think about how awesome these events are, how incredible they truly are. This is God sending his son to be a miracle baby, born of a virgin into our world, and this is him preparing the way for that through the birth of another baby, another miracle. A miracle that shouldn't have happened in any natural sense. And yet here is God preparing the way for the arrival of his son. If you get a chance to do this, Go outside on a starlit night. You know, maybe there's going to be a clear night in the coming days, I don't know. But go, go outside on a starlit night, a very Christmassy thing to do. Look up and look at the stars and consider how many galaxies there are. Millions and billions of stars out there. And take it in for just a moment. Then come back indoors, open your Bibles and read Gabriel's words to Mary. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. And then go back out and look back at the stars again and think that that God who made those stars, all of the millions and billions of galaxies, everything we see around us, that God 
came as a baby in a manger. He came lower than we are even at a time of census where they had to register and there's no room at an inn so they found a place in a stable somewhere and a baby was placed in the manger when it was born and that was the son of God entering our world the one who made those stars and he would go on to give himself for us That's the awesomeness of the Christmas story. That's the awesomeness of what we read. No mod cons, no luxury, no fanfare beyond the angels telling some shepherds themselves, the lowest rung of society, that there was a baby born who was Christ the Lord. And all that we read in this passage is that through another baby John, born to an elderly couple, God is preparing his way. Which gets us to our third heading. He's a God of great mercy. He's a God who greatly astonishes us, should fill us with a renewed awe at what he does. For he's also a God of great redemption. And this is the song itself. This is the response Zechariah gives as his mouth is opened. He's filled with the Holy Spirit, we're told, at this moment. And he prophesies, saying, first half, that God is a God of great and unmatching redemption. And let's just remind ourselves and reflect on the words he spoke Praise be to the Lord, he says, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors, to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. Now, do you notice something about as I'm reading that, what I'm having to do is I'm having to take breaths in the middle of it. In Greek, the sentence is all just one long sentence. It's just like he can't wait to get the words out about what he's saying here, about this Savior who was to arrive. He says it all at once, this utterance of praise flowing out of his heart and mouth as he's released from this bondage he's had for the last nine months. He looks upon the child uh, that his wife has born and he gives worship to God. You know, it feels like he would almost have dropped down to his knees at this point. Because he's so filled with the awe of God. Nine months of silence. Nine months of waiting. Nine months not being able to speak or hear. God acts awesomely in the gift of John. And all Zechariah can do in reply is fall down and praise him with everything that he's got. Not even pausing for breath in what he says. I mean, that's a Christmas response, isn't it? That really is a Christmas response. That's how awesome all of this is. That even elderly priests, because that's who Zechariah is, even elderly priests who have served in the temple all their lives will be driven to their knees because of the work of God. The grace, mercy, and wonder to seal so great a redemption for his people. That word redemption, meaning a buying of us back. 
to redeem something. A buying of us back from the wages of sin and death, the great enemies that we face, setting our feet back on solid, solid ground, raising up, he described it as a, a horn of salvation, the, the symbolism of a horn being, being strength and power, because this is also who, who the baby would be. The one predicted from long ago is going to arrive. He's coming, and it's inevitable his arrival soon. And he's going to come and save his people. He's going to fulfill all of his promises. He's going to redeem back from death all who place their faith in him. And it tells us that our God is so worthy of our praise now, 2,000 years later on. Because this does not change. It doesn't change. The response to God is still to be the same. That he is so worthy of us giving our lives in response and walking in ways of worship towards him. And that's the point Zechariah makes. It's a redemption for a purpose. It's about rescuing from enemies, he describes, and death itself. But not just to sit pretty and wait for his return. He says in verse 74 to 75, it's to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. It's redemption for a purpose, not just to sit pretty. It's to renew and change our lost hearts too. From the lost things that we pursue towards the, the found, final, and full life that we can live by serving God. And when I say serving God, I, I don't mean standing at the front of church or, or, or preaching or doing anything particularly like that necessarily, as if that's the only way we can properly serve God. That's absolute nonsense. It's serving God where we are, with whomever we are with, whatever we are doing. Holiness and righteousness are as much a part of our walk with God when we leave the doors of the church as they are when we sit in the pews here this morning. In whatever we do. It talks about shining a light. Shining a light in our uh, workplaces, social groups, with neighbors and friends. Even the mundane things that we feel we do that helps in our world, that can be done in worship to God. Because it's a whole of life worship. Seeing the offering of help to another as an act of worship. Seeing a decision to pursue holiness, to deal with persistent sin, not just as an option as an optional extra, but as a heart-proper response of worship, which God promises, promises to enable for us. It's to enable us to serve Him without fear. That's worship. That's what worship is. And how great the example of Zechariah in all of this, okay? How great that we've got him as the one who's saying this. Because, of course, nine months previously, he had doubted, hadn't he? He had gone, really? <laughs> Baby? At our age? You kidding? How's that going to happen? <laughs> Don't think so. Nine months later, he's seen all this happen... And he's changed. He's been changed by the miracle of God. He's been changed by a new birth. And so how much more should we also be changed by our new birth? 
It's a lifelong task, but God is in the changing business today to take our hearts of stone and to remake them with hearts of flesh, to serve him in every aspect of life in response to all he has done for us. Uh, which gets us to our last heading this morning. He's a God of great mercy, a God who greatly astonishes, a God of great redemption, and all of this culminates as we look ahead in him being a God of great hope. What do you hope for in life? What do you hope for in life? What are your hopes and dreams? How do you look at the future? Does it look secure or does it seem a bit scary? Do we look around in fear or with God's future in mind? Essentially, where does our faith lie? Well, do you know, from what Zechariah says, he tells us quite clearly all of that, all of those things, and every moment we live, our hope lies in the God of great hope. Because that's what he truly gave us that first Christmas. It's what he continues to give us this very day. You know, I said a couple of weeks ago when we started this series that often people sing about the things which matter most to them. Artists do that. They write songs about things that matter most to them and then they sing them. Here's how Zechariah's song finishes. And he talks to John in particular now. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet to the path of peace. And why is he saying that? It's because God's Savior is going to change absolutely everything. In fact, that was some of the reasoning why John the Baptist was given a name different to any other in his family. Because John would be doing something different to anything his family had done before. Not doing what had gone before. Not following the well-trodden paths of, of Old Testament. Not going over the same ways as gone before. John's role was to say... The Lord is doing something new. He's doing something new. And this Savior who's coming will change absolutely everything. And so as we close for this morning, that truth is to fill us with great hope on this weekend before Christmas. Great hope that God has done something new and one day he will make all things new once more. Because we get the awesome privilege, don't we, at Christmas to look back on the events that then took place. We see it from this side of things. They were living it. They were living it day by day, month by month. We see what was only in their future at this point. We see the Savior, that a rising sun would come from heaven, that a shining light would break through the darkness of our hearts, that a Savior who is Christ the Lord, God in flesh, would give of his riches of grace, his abundance of love, and live that kind of a life and then would hang on a cross for us.
because that's how awesome he is. So the shadow of death would no longer loom large. So that the ultimate peace of God can now be our final destination too. Led there by the Son, sealed by his Spirit, and promised by the Almighty God, even at the first Christmas. And so what's this going to do for you this morning? What's it going to do for you? Is this a day to experience the great mercy of God? To know his forgiveness, whether it's for the first time or for the thousandth time. To know his great mercy for all he has done for us in Jesus. Maybe it's the day that you need to be moved out of familiarity and back to that awe, to recapture something of the awesomeness of what God has done, of who he is, to rekindle that relationship with God, to make a commitment to do that. Maybe you've, you know, fallen out with your Bible reading or just got, you know, prayer isn't really happening at the moment. Maybe today's the time to say, do you know what? I'm going to recommit myself to that. As we look towards a new year, maybe that's a commitment to make because of all he has done for us. Maybe it's a commitment to worship and all of life worship, not just a part of life worship, or maybe a particular area of life that you just know. You just know that you need to make a change where you can serve him better in holiness and righteousness. Make the change. God enables it. And with God, it will always be worth it. Or maybe you're someone who just needs a reminder of where our hope really does lie. Maybe the last days or weeks have just been really difficult and hard and tough. Maybe you've struggled. And what God wants to do for you this morning is to lift your head, help you to see him more clearly again, be reminded of his mercy, his grace, and the peace that our Advent candle reminds us of so that we can better grow to become more like him and be reassured of what he's done for us. And so maybe before I pray, let's do that. Let's just take a few moments in quiet and ask God, what do you want to speak to me about today? And then I'll pray for us and we'll sing our final song. And Father, as we sit in the quietness, in the relative peace of just being quiet in a church building or at home, we thank you that you're the one who brings peace into our very souls. Holy Spirit, may you do a work among us. Whether it's that we need 
to experience your mercy once again. To bring before you anything that holds us back from an open relationship with you. Anything we need to change. Lord, by your Spirit, help us to do that. Lord, help us to live consistent lives before you. That as we act in church, as we spend this time together, as we worship you, help us, Lord, to be a people of worship when we leave through the doors. Help us, Lord, to pursue holiness, a right walk with you, a right walk with others as well as we seek to serve you. Father, help us to know where our hope truly does lie. That by your Spirit, we wouldn't just know this in our minds. That any familiarity we would have with the Christmas story, Lord, would you remove that in order that we might glimpse it afresh? So that you might stir in us that fresh awe, that fresh hope this Christmas time. And for our world, Lord God, a world that groans and aches and struggles, and particularly at this time, we pray that that light that shines in the darkness would be seen all the more clearly. That you would shine your presence. That you would help churches to shine your presence through the events of this weekend and the week ahead. Help us, Lord God, to shine for you in all we meet and all we do. And it's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.